So we're back in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. We're going to close out this chapter as it is. Uh, I would say chapters 18 and 19 are some of the most monumental chapters of this first book of Kings. As we have, as you've probably noticed since we've spent a couple weeks in just these chapters alone. Uh, this morning we're entering into the last couple verses of chapter 19. Which give us this really interesting scene where Elisha is called by Elijah to follow him. Now, uh, what I want to do with this particular passage is is kind of walk through each of these verses slowly and see uh, what they're actually saying to us. Because I think what's actually going on here is is one of the perhaps rare, but actually one of the most powerful and poignant examples of what it looks like to, quote, be a disciple. Now, when you come to church, that's a word that you hear a lot. In, in various church settings and church contexts, you hear about discipleship groups and discipleship books and discipleship relationships and how we are supposed to be discipling one another as we are all collectively disciples of God. Here this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a disciple. Maybe you don't think of yourself in that way, but that's who you are. That's part of your identity as a son or daughter of the Lord Jesus, or of the God on high. You are a disciple. It's a, a follower, a student. And what does that look like? Most often, I think, when we hear about discipling or discipleship and such, we turn to Jesus' words, and rightly so. Luke 14 is a very uh, powerful chapter where Jesus really clarifies what it looks like and what it means to be a disciple. We can turn to uh, the books of the Apostle Paul and, and how he talks about being a true disciple and what it looks like for someone to follow the Lord Jesus with their lives. But I think... We do a great disservice to ourselves, to our faith, if we only seclude our thoughts of discipleship to those last 27 books of the Bible, just the New Testament. (laughs) Of course, discipleship is something that runs throughout the scriptures. The way in which uh, these disciples respond to the call of God on their lives and and follow him in various ways throughout their lives. There's many, many examples of that, yes, throughout the Old Testament. But I think there's no better picture of what it looks like and what it means for someone to be a disciple of God than right here in these last three verses of chapter 19. So that's what I want to go through this morning. Going through the discipling relationship that we have with one another, with God, and what it looks like to respond, so to speak, to the call of God on our lives. Firstly, I want to notice three things, but firstly, the surprise of God's call. The surprise of God's call. Because notice, when Elijah leaves Horeb, he is on a commission by God to spy out, as it says in verse 16, the prophet who was to be in his room. Notice it says that, And Jehu the son of Nimshi shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meloha shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Essentially, you are to go out and you're going to find the man who is going to take your place. And he finds him, this man, Elisha, 
Lo and behold, in the fields, hard at work. Notice verse 19. So he departed. So Elijah is leaving Horeb, that place where he had spent so much time communing with the voice of Yahweh itself. And it says, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he with the 12. And Elijah passed by him and casts his mantle upon him. And here... Really fascinating little scene. Elisha, he continues with this task that he's doing. He's plowing in the fields doing what a farmer does. He's, he, even though uh, what has just happened, this prophet has cast his cloak over his shoulders. And it prompts this young farmer to drop his plow and sprint after his new teacher. Notice verse 20. And he left the oxen. And ran after Elijah. There's some interesting things I want to point out really quickly. Because uh, you see, what, it's not surprising to find Elisha, this, this young man, uh, sort of uh, in the fields farming, doing the work of a farmer. Especially considering that agriculture and those sorts of things, those were the, the primary industries of the age. It's no surprise that we find him there. But what is worth noting, I think, is, is to note just how wealthy this farm really was. Because you see, notice as it says in verse 19, that Elisha, the son of Shaphat, was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. 12 yoke, 12 pairs, 24 oxen in front of him. And he is with the 12th yoke. No small achievement in this day and age to have this many oxen to your name. It, I think, actually suggests that Elisha's family is actually a wealthy family. They're a well-to-do family with a successful business in front of them. A business of agriculture. It gives them a place of status. And it gives them a name of means. And Shaphat Farms, if you will, was a very well-to-do operation. And this is just conjecture, just surmising, but I I imagine Elisha here standing, doing the work that he was called to do by his dad. And perhaps even he was going to inherit some of this estate one day. And yet to this simple yet successful farmer comes this incredible call of Yahweh, the Jehovah God, to follow him in prophetic ministry. (laughs) It's quite surprising when you think of it that way. But I think also too what makes this call to ministry even more surprising, even more gripping, at least it grips me, is just sort of the unassuming nature of this guy who is being called. He's Elisha. He's a farmer, a man who just loves to be with the earth. And here he is in his element, I would imagine. He's in the fields Doing the work that his daddy had called for him to do. He's plowing. And that's where Elijah, as it says in verse 19, casts his mantle upon him. You see, this is a moment that doesn't make sense in our culture. It doesn't really ring the same sort of notes to us. This idea of throwing your jacket on someone. 
It's what a good boyfriend does when their girlfriend is cold. Uh, This is not what's going on here. Uh, Actually what's going on is this is a profoundly symbolic moment of sort of the transfer of power and authority. And essentially what Elijah is doing, he's giving a public show that his, uh, all the things that were in his vesture, his authority, his title, his office so to speak, are being transferred to this one that he is throwing his cloak over. He's giving a very demonstrable sign that the prophet who is going to serve in his room, in his stead, in his place, is none other than this farmer Elisha. That's what's happening here. And so you picture this incredible scene. Elisha the farmer in the fields plowing. Perhaps it was just like any other Tuesday. (laughs) I, I was thinking about this as I was studying uh, this particular passage and just thinking about this scene from Elisha's perspective. You wake up on, uh, at 4 a.m. on a normal Tuesday. <laughs> you, you go about your business on the farm, milking, collecting eggs, whatever you're doing. And now you uh, hook up all the oxen to the plow and you start out to work in the fields. And it's just a normal day. There's nothing overly dramatically special about it. Although you've heard these rumblings on that particular morning that there's a prophet on the farm somewhere. And he's making all these inquiries about Shaphat's sons. I don't know what that's about, but you're doing your duty. You're doing your job. And suddenly you see this prophet in the distance. And you're like, there he is. The guy that everyone's buzzing about. You just go about doing your business. You're plowing. And you're looking at him out of the corner of your eye as you're plowing. And this prophet is getting nearer and nearer and closer and closer. And finally, he comes up right to you. And in the middle of you trying to do your job, trying to do what you're supposed to be doing on this early morning. You say, hey, hey, prophet, how you doing? He doesn't say anything. He takes off his mantle and he throws it over your shoulders. And then he walks away. No words, no uh, sort of conversation interchanged between these two figures. You have a guy plowing and a guy coming up to him and throwing his cloak over his shoulders. And Elisha is in stunned silence. (laughs) He understands the cultural symbolism of what has just happened. A prophet of Jehovah, of Yahweh, has thrown his mantle over my shoulders, symbolizing that I am to come and fulfill his ministry in his room. I am come to follow him. That's what's happening here in the scene. I imagine him sort of zoning out. And for perhaps a long time too, as it says in verse 20, when he finally comes to, when he comes to his senses and realizes everything that has just happened, he has to actually run to catch up to Elijah. (laughs) So I just picture Elisha just standing there with this plow on the ground now, with this new robe over his shoulders, not really knowing what to do or what to say. And he finally just comes to and he chases after his new teacher, Elijah. And what does he say? I will follow thee, he says. He pledges his allegiance to this one who has just totally interrupted his day. You see, from Elijah's, or excuse me, Elisha's perspective, this is a moment of complete and utter surprise. He didn't wake up 
on this random Tuesday thinking my day is going to be completely reordered and reconfigured. In fact, my whole life is going to be changed this day. I don't think he had that thought. He didn't have those sort of, uh, he didn't let his mind wander to those sorts of things. But that's exactly what has happened. That's exactly what this scene entails. It's the call of God being visibly shown on Elisha's life. And now his life is not his own. It's to be spent in the ministry of prophesying to Jehovah and of Jehovah. You see, this random run-of-the-mill Tuesday where he was just thought he was waking up to go about farming has actually become Elisha's day of reckoning. Will he answer to the call of Yahweh or will he not? Will he respond to this moment of discipleship happening at the hands and at the beck and call of Elijah or will he not? It's a moment of surprise. It's a moment of suddenness. It's a moment of shock. It's a moment of interruption. And see, what seems shocking to us, what seems surprising to us, is actually not at all surprising with God or shocking with God. We know this, especially from this chapter. Because we have that insight that Elijah was supposed to find this man. That it was in the plans of God to find this son, Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And he's the one you were to anoint to be the next prophet of Jehovah. That's the inside baseball, if you will, that the historian here gives us. But to Elisha, this is completely surprising, completely unsettling, completely new. What does Yahweh want with me? What is this prophet Elijah, the one we've heard about making such a show and making such a scene with those prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel? What does he want with me? And yet what we see here is that the sovereign plans and intentions of God can sometimes seem surprising to us. They can shock us. They can unnerve us. They can interrupt and perhaps sometimes even, yes, upset our well-ordered lives. (laughs) And yet always and ever are God's plans moving forward. And here they're moving forward through this simple, humble farmer. And it was his sovereign intention, Yahweh's sovereign plan to snatch from this field a new voice to proclaim his salvation to the nations. We'll get there, but I might as well get here now. Did you know that that's what his name means? Elisha means God is salvation. That's what he is supposed to be declaring. That's his office as a prophet to declare how God works. He saves remarkably and unexpectedly and surprisingly. And I would say there are times, even just here, in Elisha's perspective, that God seems to be acting on impulse. Elijah's office is done. He's sort of at the end of of his ministerial effectiveness. Time to find a new guy. 
It seems sometimes, like it does here from Elisha's perspective, that God is just kind of operating by the, by the seat of his pants. He's just operating on impulse, uh, not really having a plan. He's just uh, going about making sure things operate accordingly. But that's decidedly not how the God of the Word operates. He is not a God that uh, flies by the seat of his pants. He's a God who never operates on a whim. He only ever operates in divine wisdom. And even here, even though it appears nonsensical to Elisha, this is wisdom being displayed on the heart of God who is operating and making effective his plans to reach his people with who he is. So when God's call comes to you, you can rest assured that it is not just fate It's not just happenstance. It's not just luck or chance coming about in your life. It's God moving. Have you felt the call of God in your life? Maybe it's to minister to some person around you. Maybe it's to pursue actually full-time ministry, if you will. And it seems too far out there because it would mean the upsetting of the life that I've made for myself. Like Elisha, you're set for a good while. See, God's plans are always moving forward. Even when they seem surprising to us. Even when they appear to come to us in very sudden ways. His plans are unstoppable. And guess what? The wonderful thing about the surprise of God's call on our life is that he is enlisting us for service in this kingdom that's coming about in his way, in his timing, and in his plans. I wonder what God might be preparing you for. Elisha has been a farmer his whole life. It doesn't seem like the natural sort of preparatory field from which to draw out someone who declare boldly the things of Yahweh. And that's what God does. God pulls from this farm... A man who would declare his salvation. Surprising to Elisha, but always within the sovereignty of the one who made all things and spoke all things and through whom all things consist. To me, it's an amazing moment. What might God be calling you to this morning? I, I, I won't try and discern that for you. I cannot. <laughs> I cannot see the ways God is is working on you individually for, quote, the next step in your discipleship. But what I can say definitively is that regardless of what your present circumstances look like, what your present condition looks like, this is your field of preparation for God's service. Where you are right now is where God has you by design. Sometimes it's hard to see that. Sometimes it's very easy to resist that. 
How, do, how could God be preparing me? This has nothing to do with what I eventually want to do or what I feel called to do. I, I, I may have shared this with you before, but I'll share it again. Uh, I have felt called to the ministry for a while. Since about my early days of college. Even though I grew up as a pastor's kid, I, for some while I resisted that idea that I would be just another pastor's kid. <laughs> And yet God got a hold of me in my early days of college and he shook my life around and I began to study for the ministry. And I knew eventually that one day God would have me be a preacher and a pastor in a church. That's what he had for me. He solidified that call. And yet after graduating college, it was years before that call was ever realized. Actually, we, we, we and Natalie, we moved to Florida after living in South Carolina for a while, after our college days. We moved to Florida. We were closer to her family. And I spent many years working in, quote, the secular workforce, if you will. Wasn't doing what I felt called to do. I cannot tell you how frustrated that made me feel. <laughs> Because, again, I'll, I'll get there in a minute, but I was thinking very selfishly in that moment. I can't tell you how many evenings I would just have to weep with Natalie. When is God going to do what I feel like he's called me to do? Why is he suppressing this urge on me? Even in churches that I would go to and they wouldn't quite work out, I would be so frustrated. Why had God given me this direct and very, very vocal call on my life and he wasn't perhaps letting me do what I felt called to do? And it wasn't until I realized that right where I was, that's where I was called to minister. That seems like a very simple thing to come to, but it was very profound for me. I was working as a purchasing manager of a chemical company. Doesn't feel like the preparatory field for a pastor. <laughs> sort of like this farmer Elisha. Yet for so long, I felt terribly because I had resisted the idea that the people that were around me, they were the ones that needed my ministry most. And I was always looking for that, that ministry position that was in front of me. I was waiting for God to give me that direct sign that this is where you're going to be called. This is where you're going to preach. And there were people who didn't know Jesus that were right in the cubicle next to me that needed my faithfulness. Where is God preparing you? How is God preparing you? That was my preparatory field, and I didn't realize it until way late in the game. Where you are is where God wants you to evidence your discipleship. You have a surprising call of God on your life. Yes, even now, even right here this morning, to follow him in faith. How will you respond when that call comes? It's surprising, but notice, notice number two, the surprise of God's call, the scope of God's call. Because Elisha's response here in this little passage in 1 Kings gives us, I think, the best estimation of the type of guy he was. 
The caliber of his character is known as he responds to this call. This mantle has been thrown on him. This cloak of Elijah has been tossed to him. And he drops his tools. He drops everything and runs after this prophet. And he left oxen, verse 20, and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? So this prophet hears this new sort of disciple's plea. He says, let me go back. Let me, let me go home and, and say goodbye to my mom and dad. And Elijah basically says, in effect, sure, I haven't, I'm not stopping you. I'm not doing anything to prevent that. So he goes home to say goodbye to his mom and dad. Which is a really interesting scene because keep your finger there. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 because Jesus Seemingly, on the surface, makes reference to this exact moment. A disciple in the fields plowing who is called by God. And he seems to make a negative connotation with what's happening. Notice Luke chapter 9, look at verse 61. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell. Which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him. No man having put his hand to the plow. And looking back. Is fit for the kingdom of God. Seems to be. Like he is making an allusion. At least on the surface. To Elisha. A disciple called by God. In the fields plowing. Who wants to go back. Home and, and say farewell. And he says no. You, you, you got to make a definitive cut in your life so to speak. At least that appears to be what Jesus is saying. And there's obviously some parallels in both places. You have this farmer who talks about following Jesus. And what is constituting true discipleship. And it has actually led some to believe that Elisha's sort of request to go back home. Is him evidencing that he's actually more unwilling than we actually think to follow Elisha. Elijah, that he actually has some reticence, he has some hesitancy. I don't think that that's true at all. I don't think that the hesitancy of this nameless farming disciple in Luke chapter 9 is the same or even similar to Elisha's response. Elisha's response of going back home and, and saying goodbye, a farewell visit, if you will, with his mom and dad and perhaps other family members is not at all the same as, quote, him putting his hand to the plow and looking back and getting that reproach uh, response from the Lord Jesus. Precisely because in 1 Kings 19.21, Elisha burns his plow. <laughs> you want to talk about a definitive cut in your life? Watch what Elisha does. So he goes back, verse 21, he returns, he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. They have a feast. They have a celebration. They're making some really good steak. It's a steak dinner with he and his family And it's not irrelevant to note what he uses to roast those ribeyes. Notice what he says. And he boiled their flesh with what? The instruments of the oxen. The equipment that's used to link the oxen to his plow and to work in the fields. That's what he's using as the kindling to start those fires. 
Those old yokes that he used to work with every morning, every day, those were what, uh, what ignited the flames for this dinner party. He's literally burning the equipment that defined his own life, his old life. He's going home saying goodbye to family that there's a call of God. I'm to follow this teacher, this prophet. I am to follow him wherever that may be. And to mark a definitive line of separation between his old self and his new self. He literally burns what defines his old self. He's bidding adieu, so to speak, to his old employment, knowing that there is a new sense of calling on his life. So you see, Elisha is not double-minded at all. He's not that hesitant disciple who keeps looking back, who is still holding on to what he had in the past. He doesn't have a backup plan if Elijah's teaching doesn't work out. He's making a definitive separation. I am following you. He wasn't taking uh, just leave. He was separating himself fully and wholly to the God who had called him. And you see this is the scope of the call of God on our lives. God is not satisfied with partial devotion. We sometimes think that way. I think that way. I'll I'll give God all of these things this time, this time, but I want to keep this for myself. I want to keep this. This is my this is my little space, my little thing that I want to keep going. I'll give Him everything else. We often do that. We sequester our religion and our faith and our discipleship into little cubbies. He goes here and my entertainment goes there and my book reading goes here. and That's not at all what God's call on our life looks like. The scope of it is not just part of you, not just most of you. God wants all of you. That's the scope of the call that I think we could even say that God deserves, that God is owed. It's like that old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We sing that. I I can't tell you how many times I've sung that hymn. And I love it. It's one of my favorite hymns. But how often have I paused to actually think and pray those words? All of me. All of me is what Jesus is owed. And am I relenting? Am I hesitating? Am I trying to keep my grip on something? Not letting it go into the service of the, my new king and master. How many of us are like that hesitant prophet out of Luke 9? And we're not definitively making a statement that there's a new call on our lives. You see, those words that him, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe are that are just that. They're a prayer. To remember exactly this, that disciples of the Lord Jesus are called to live in open-handed faith. By which it is meant that we know that we've been given everything in Christ. Therefore, we don't have to white-knuckle anything for ourselves. 
We've been redeemed by God and we are called by God to live not for ourselves but for God's glory. That's what it means to answer this call on our lives. And we are freed from relentlessly clinging to what we can gain because of what God has given us in his son. That's what following this call means. You don't have to grip your life. Because following God means dying to yourself. Jesus makes that very evident. Pick up your cross and follow me. And I would say even too that it's in dying to ourselves and the lives that we think that we can manufacture and keep and maintain for ourselves. That's when we truly realize and truly understand what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When we die to ourselves. But what exactly was, was Elijah surrendering to? Well that brings me to the last point this morning. We have the surprise of God's call. The scope of God's call. And lastly number three. The significance of God's call. And this to me is one of the ones that to me has the most impact on my life. You see after the meal. Elijah collects himself. And he goes after his new teacher. He returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he rose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now that verse might not strike you as incredibly remarkable or noteworthy, but I think it's really important that we pause and contemplate what exactly is going on. You have this awesome dinner party. Elisha leaves and he goes with his new teacher. And it says there that he ministered unto him. Now knowing perhaps what you know about Elisha's life. You can read ahead in 2 Kings. You can do that. There's no spoilers in the Bible. You can read ahead and you can see exactly what's entailed with Elisha's life. As we noted, he, his name literally means God is salvation. And there's going to be a very noticeable difference between Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry. Whereas Elijah was called by God to actually bring Israel back to a recognition by demonstrably, demonstrably proving who was the true God. We find that at Mount Carmel, First uh, Kings chapter 18. Elisha is actually going to bring the news of healing and restoration and salvation. And not just to the Israelites, by the way. He's going to make it known that this God who is the one true God is the God who can save. And yes, even save those who are not part of the kingdom of Israel too. Which is a really amazing thing when you think about it if you read ahead. But his entire ministry, Elisha's did, hinged on that promise. It's a big, it's a big calling. And notice how it starts. He ran and he arose and he went after Elijah and ministered unto him. He wasn't propelled to some really high grandstanding situation or station. He was actually called to minister, literally to serve and attend unto Elijah's needs. So you see, while the eventual task that God had placed on Elisha's life was indeed very marvelous, very momentous, one that would reach out through the centuries as a ministry of the gospel of grace, that's what it entails. 
He would be, uh, he would eventually find himself reaching the firm, the furthest limits of the promised land with this testimony of deliverance. And yet, the early days of his prophetic calling were actually engrossed in lowly service. Actually, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, it talks about one of the things that he was known for was washing Elijah's hands. He's serving his new teacher. He's doing the work of a minister. And you see here, you have this amazing juxtaposition that this guy that potentially might have inherited Shaphat Farms is now following a teacher, a teacher who is unpopular, whose name is actually on Jezebel's most wanted list, and he's washing his hands. (laughs) He's serving him. Think about that trajectory of life. It seems to be not going upwards. (laughs) Elijah has called Elisha into the service because he knows who is true and who is right. And this is the significance of Elisha's call. He was given these smaller assignments first. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke 16, talking about he who is faithful and little will be given and entrusted much. Actually, that's a terrible paraphrase of that verse. I'll just read it so it doesn't feel like I'm taking the scripture out of context. (laughs) Luke 16, verse 10, Jesus has this profound word, which I think we see here evidenced in Elisha's life. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. And I think you see that's exactly what Elisha is here evidencing. Responding to the call of the Lord Jesus on his life in, yes, even little ways. Which is to say this. Maybe God's call on your life is not to go into some spotlight position. For some that's true. I'm thankful that God has called people to be quote very much in the national spotlight. And they're actually maintaining somehow by God's grace their testimony for the Lord Jesus. That they're in very recognizable positions. I'm kind of thankful God has not called me to do that. But I would say even more so than that, that more often than not, what God's call on our lives looks like means serving him in relative anonymity. Serving him and doing things for the name of God, for the kingdom of God, in ways that often go unapplauded and uncredited. Let me give an example. I think the best example of this was actually my poppy. That's what I called my granddad. My dad's dad, he was a pastor, he was a teacher, he passed away in 2016. Actually, one of the things that I will always remember about my poppy is that he was really looking forward to meeting Lydia. And in fact, when he was on his deathbed, he even reiterated that same thing. Natalie was very much pregnant at the time. (laughs) And we were there in that hospital room and he was reiterating how much he was looking forward to meeting Lydia, yet he never did. He passed away actually a day before Natalie's birthday in October of 2016. After 30 plus years of Christian education experience, starting and running different schools throughout the decades, and actually over 50 years of pastoral ministry experience as well. 
serving in multiple churches at one time, pastoring two churches at once. He was faithful and he was devoted to the word of God. He served God and his church tirelessly all of his life. And yet, as I've reflected, who is going to remember my poppy in a generation from now? The scriptures tell us, actually. It's a stark reminder, but they tell us that actually probably no one will. It's a sad thing to come to, but it's, it's kind of just reality. It's just kind of facing the facts that I might be able to impart some of my memories onto my children, but they won't have the same cherishedness of holding on to those memories. And soon the memory of Poppy will all be but forgotten. And that's the profound perplexity of surrendering our lives to the things of God. It almost always involves engaging in very small and perhaps even unseen things over a long period of time. But guess what? You know who does remember servants like my poppy? You know who knows every single one of those small acts of kindness that he performed and those acts of compassion and those acts of consideration, those nights of sleepless prayer, those nights of stress, those nights of vexing over a sermon, those nights of ministry that go on and on and on. You know who does see all those things and notice them all and take, uh, uh, take awareness of them all? God does. God sees every single one of the things that we think are just out into the oblivion. And I would say that I think that that's what settled my poppy's life. A servant of God who... Likely won't ever have a statue made in his likeness or a building named after him or some charity left behind to carry on his amazing legacy. And yet he served. And yet he followed God's call. Precisely because Yahweh, he knew, had an affinity, has an affinity for the unnoticed and the unrewarded. You see, this is what the call of God in our lives does. It extends the sovereignty and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. Extends to relieve us from the pressure of having to make a name for ourselves. Precisely because our names are written on the palms of God's hands. You know, that's what it says in Isaiah 49, 16, that our names are inscribed in indelible ink on the palms of Yahweh himself. It's like you're trying to cheat on a test. You write the answers on your hands. Something you cannot forget. Something you are always striving to remember. And it's this amazing thing that if you want to know how much you are remembered by God, it's right there on the palm of his hands. It's written in ink, red blood ink. Therefore, we're free not to have to make a name for ourselves, not to try and be remembered. We can answer the surprising and very sort of interrupting and significant call of God on our lives because we know ultimately who remembers us, who sustains us, who keeps us. As this Lord Jesus 
who sees all the unnoticed things, who remembers all the unregarded things. Yes, even ways in which we get frustrated. We can be reminded by God himself that I am yours and you are mine. I wonder where and to what might God be calling you to this morning? Where have you been resisting that call? That, quote, next step in your discipleship of following him in faith. This morning, I encourage you to step out in faith. Because this one who has called you promises to be with you every single step of the way. And the same one who has called you and the same one who is with you is the same one who died for you. This is the one you are surrendering to. It's not some abstract philosophy, not some weird hokey religion. You're surrendering to a person who surrendered everything for you and for me. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Let us pray.